0: everybody to another edition of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for insidendesports.com on the Rivals Network. Only two Notre Dame players, safety Kyle Hamilton and running back Kyron Williams, were selected in last week's NFL draft, which marked the fewest for the Irish since 2017. That speaks a bit to Notre Dame's need to keep increasing the talent level in its program, which head coach Marcus Freeman has certainly been doing on the recruiting trail. The Irish still have plenty of momentum and should continue to add commitments this month as Freeman continues to put his fingerprints on the program. Head coaches like Marcus Freeman aren't allowed on the recruiting trail right now during the spring evaluation period. So he has a little bit of extra time in his hands and he used some of that time recently to join former Notre Dame star Chris Zorich on the Zorich podcast. We don't exactly need an excuse to invite Chris onto our podcast, but that seemed like as good of a reason as any. And we're happy that Chris has, has obliged. Chris, thanks for joining us.
1: I love it. Thank you very much for having me, guys. I appreciate it. <laughs> Chris, you
0: you've had a number of interactions with Marcus Freeman. Now, what what is the quality you see in him that leads you to believe that he will be a successful football coach, a uh, head football coach?
1: Wow. Um, how much time do you get? I mean, <laughs> I, I'm sold. You know, I, I drank the Kool Aid and and I'm a huge uh, Coach Freeman fan and it's just so interesting when you think about someone who's played at his level and I mean, granted, he didn't win the Heisman trophy, but he was a stud linebacker. Right. And he was a a top recruit. And so he really kind of understands and kind of knows what it's like to be, uh, you know, at a, a, a really big time uh, program. Right. I mean, at, at Ohio state. So, and then he had some great coaches, Jim Trussell, and so when you hear him speak, when you're around him, he talks like a player's coach. And it was so interesting. I was fortunate enough to have him on the podcast, as you mentioned. And I played that video that, I mean, I've watched a thousand times. I'm sure you guys have seen it. And everybody around the country has seen it. When he walks into the locker room, all the, the players go nuts. And kind of, kind of hearing and seeing his reaction is it, really great because, you know, he just talked about how, he really loves his players and it, 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 it's so funny because he mentioned uh, when he went to go visit Coach Holtz, the first thing Coach Holtz said was, my players didn't love me like that. They didn't hug me. They wouldn't have hugged me like that. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's just so funny because, you know, for a while there, he was getting a bad rap. Coach Freeman was getting a bad rap for kind of being a player's coach and for, for his players to kind of hug on him and love him. And... To a T, folks who are not Notre Dame friends, who are not Notre Dame fans. Yes, I have friends who are not Notre Dame fans, <laughs> and um, you know they're always giving me a hard time. But they're like, "Wow, we would love to have a coach like that, where the players feel that way about him." And so when you ask the question, you know, how do you, how will he think? How do I think he'll be as a head coach? You know, he's taking care of all of the 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 important things first. Um, first is obviously being a great leader. And his players obviously feel that way about him, but that's respect you have to earn, right? And yeah. so I think be, because of where he's come from, his uh, uh, pedigree, having a chance to be, to be drafted in the, the NFL, being a, a stud player in college, they have that respect for him. So now it's, okay, what, what can you teach me? How can I improve? my skill set in order for us to be winners. And he's been able to do that by putting together a great staff. And one of the things that he talked about in the podcast, and I thought this was incredible. um, He talked about when he was looking at um, Al Golden, the idea that he was a head coach was important to him. He's like, because I don't have head coaching experience. And so I need someone on the staff who has, who has head coaching experience. And for a head coach to say that, let alone a head coach at Notre Dame to say that, I think was just absolutely amazing. And so, you know, I, I've had a, bu- a bunch of mentors in my life. And one of the things that they've said unanimously was, if you don't know something, find someone who does, you know, don't think because you're a leader, you know, everything. And that's just a perfect example of Coach Freeman's leadership. And so now we all, we, we, we have to see, you know, what he's doing X's and O's wise. And I, I don't think it was a fair assessment um, to have him play on the Fiesta Bowl against um, Oklahoma State, you know, the idea that he had, what, maybe three weeks to to prepare for it. He was his first head coaching job. He was like, Hey, this is going to be great if he has a chance to win a match championship. And the first time he's a head coach, I'm like, "Whoa, pump the brakes. Right. I mean, you did not even know where the office is at, you know? So <laughs> the idea that as Notre Dame fans, we are rabid folks. And we're just excited to kind of, you know, have some fresh blood in there is important, but allow him to kind of make mistakes, allow him to be, or, or kind of grow into the head coach that we all want him to be.
2: Chris, um, you had Marcus on your podcast, I think, right after he was elevated, and then, and then now. And I'm sure you've been around him in between. Besides the element that you just talked about about hiring Al Golden, what did you learn from Marcus yesterday that maybe you didn't know prior? Uh,
1: uh, really, his his attention to his players. Um, one of the things I talked to him about, you know, was making that transition from defensive court to head to head coach. Has your leadership style has your leadership style changed? Yeah. And he talked about how before he was in charge of the eleven guys on defense, and now he's in charge of one hundred and five guys on the whole team. And he really kind of emphasized the idea that you know he has assistant coaches now that will take on that that responsibility so now he he has that that head coaching role and he kind of talked about how he loves and hugs his players and you know in our society now it's hard for men to kind of show their emotions and going along with kind of what he was talking about was the idea of you know i love these guys as i would love my children and I, i discipline my children so the idea that you have a head coach now who will look at, you know, one, everybody in, in the same fashion, but the idea that, you know, he loves and hugs these guys is important because they thrive on this ability to be disciplined. I mean, all, all kids do. And so the idea that you have someone now who's, who understands that as a head coach is extremely important. So that, that's one of the things that I've learned.
0: Chris, I think certainly something that has, has stood out to us about Marcus Freeman is sort of his intensity and dedication to recruiting. Um, how critical do you think that is for Notre Dame? And why do you think he will be six, successful in doing that?
1: Well, I think the perfect example, like the the first time I was fortunate enough to interview him, um, he was still the defensive coordinator And we just talked about how he was this voracious recruiter. um, Not taking anything away from folks on on, on the staff, but he was just, I mean, we we all saw it. And it was so interesting because had he not been that type of recruiter that he showed us in 11 months at Notre Dame, now, yeah, he was great at Cincinnati, but in the 11 months he was the the defensive coordinator, we signed – and obviously you guys know this more than I do, but we 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 signed some top players, some top defensive players, and that was his responsibility. Now, had he not been that racist, had he not been that type of recruiter, he probably does not get the head coaching job, right? Because there are other people on the staff that obviously had been there way longer than he has, who I'm sure did not even get a cup of coffee, right? Did not even get an interview. Yet here's this young guy who's 35 years old, But he comes into the door with this resume of being this phenomenal recruiter. And, oh, guess what? When he becomes the head coach, that's one of his top priorities. So he talked about how he's not going to have, I think they have uh, 10 folks on the staff or 10 coaches. Yeah. He he talked about how it's not going to be nine great recruiters and a head coach. There's going to be 10 great recruiters. And that's what he looked for. And so it's so interesting. See, so you mentioned, you know, the, his whole idea on recruiting now as being the head coach. I mean, I don't think it's changed. I think a perfect example, and we, we got to talk about this on the podcast. He has his press conference, has a team meeting, then he hops on a plane. And within hours, he's in front of the, he's in this kid's living room talking to his kid's parents. And oh, by the way, you know, it's the same suit he had on when he did okay. the press conference. Right. So like literally within hours, he's in front of somebody's um, uh, 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 he's at somebody's kitchen table having dinner with them. And you know, I'm sitting there like, you know, did you have a chance to like relax and have a cocktail, maybe a cigar and say, hey, this you know, I finally made it. And he was like, Chris, I was out the door. And so, you know, the idea that he emphasized about kind of um, talent acquisition, which is something we obviously hear in the business world. But the idea that he understands in order to improve, in order to win championships, you have to recruit. Well, you have to have great players and a great staff. And he kind of talked about uh, his ability to attract, you know, obviously great, great, uh, a great staff, but also kind of talked about like, like literally, I don't know if um, I mean, I'm sure you guys know a lot more than I do, but you know, it's like one of those graphs where you kind of like saw the plane, like, go all over the country within a couple hours.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And, you know, he explained that he only had a couple hours sleep and they were dropping coaches off at certain places. And, and I was like, you know, did you have a chance to kind of go home and kiss your wife and say, Hey, honey, you know, I'm the head coach of Notre Dame. He was like, I don't think I did. So he, it's just amazing kind of after the press conference, kind of what happened and you know, I don't know if other coaches would do that. I wouldn't do that. I mean, I'd want to have a chance to kind of sit back and kind of, you know, hey, say, you know, hey, I did it. You know, I'll I'll get to it tomorrow. But this guy's out there doing it hours after he gets named the, the head coach of Notre Dame.
2: You know, it was funny, Chris, because I was talking to his dad at kind of after the press conference, and he kind of brushes past his dad, kind of gives him a hug, says, I love you. And dad goes, where are you going? And he goes, I have to go recruit. And he goes, I guess I'm not going to get a chance to talk to him. <laughs>
1: but, which, which, is, which is a perfect example, right? Yeah, I mean,
2: yeah. you know, his
1: parents were there. Phenomenal people yeah. I had a chance to meet them as well. Yeah. And I hung out with his wife, Joanna, more than I did with with him at the press. I didn't even see him at the press conference, right? <laughs> but and not saying that he had to, he had to stop talking to me. But the idea that, you know, he couldn't even stop and talk to pops or his mom for, yeah. for a minute. I mean, you know, he he was gone. And I I think that shows you kind of his dedication, but guess what? It shows his staff, the guys he just hired, what the level of expectation is, right? So you you can't be out-recruiting – you can't out – hopefully you can't out-recruit the head coach, right, because he has way too many responsibilities. So what does that do? That puts the pressure on you, right? (laughs) I mean, if the head coach is out there recruiting – uh, more and better than you are, then you know you're in trouble. So I just right. imagine kind of the the um, uh, the idea of having this this voracious recruiter as a head coach. Now your game has to step up, and if not, you'll probably be gone.
2: You know, um, just kind of following up on that, I think Notre Dame fans look at Marcus and see maybe the strongest recruiting staff since Vinnie Serrato was with Lou and they are excited about that. And at the same time, they have fears that this NIL thing is coming into the recruiting equation. I'm wondering how you think Marcus will handle that and what are kind of your thoughts about great recruiting and yet now you're dealing with this new element of NIL?
1: Well, I think along with that NIL, you have to also talk about the the wonderful transfer portal as well, right? I mean, yeah. that's something that you know, <laughs> it, it's so interesting. But as we've seen with the NIL, and literally just yesterday, um, you know, they're 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 trying to get Congress involved now, right? Because yeah. these these idiots at the NCAA decided, hey, let's just kind of put some something together and throw it out there without having any any restrictions. So what you're seeing is literally the wild, wild west. And before the season started last year, I wrote an op-ed for the Chicago Sun-Times really talking talking about how crazy this this NIL thing is when it's not being monitored, right? When it's not being kind of um, uh, policed, uh, so to speak. So when when you think about what Notre Dame, what their involvement will be, I'm sure they're going to take it uh, at, uh, literally, kind of what go, what everything, what everybody else is uh, having a chance to take a look at. Norway may take a step back and kind of wait until all of the the craziness clears up. Now that being said, yeah, I mean, people can read papers. They they they, they uh well, people read papers anymore? That's about how <laughs> old I am? Um, you know, folks can check out social media and see that you have schools like Texas A and M that. Uh, Apparently they've signed like the best recruiting class known to man because they're, they're offering great NIO deals. Right. And so a young kid who may not be in a great financial situation may look at that and say, Hey, I want to go there because they're, they're paying more. Yet you have someplace like Notre Dame who's kind of taking a um, like a, a kind of wait and see approach. Um, I don't think it's going to affect Notre Dame as much as folks believe now, I'm sure there are factions out there that are saying, you know, hey, you know, we have to match folks dollar for dollar. Well, Notre Dame isn't necessarily like that. And I think they're going to wait and see what happens with what's going on with Congress now and seeing what's going on with the NCA. I mean, we just got to realize the the president of the NCA just retired. And I'm sure part of this NIO pack is probably part of it because he's like, what the hell is going on here? So <laughs> I think it's more of a kind of a wait and see attitude.
0: Chris, one thing that, that Marcus certainly did and uh, correlated that with the spring game and inviting a bunch of former players back is connecting with, with the, the Notre Dame alumni and making sure that the former players sort of feel a part of this program. How is that related to you? And what do you think the value of that is?
1: Well, the one thing, I guess I can sum it up in this way. And I, I talked to uh, Coach Friedman and also uh, Jack Swarbrick about this. And it was just kind of the smallest detail, which was when we came in for one of the meetings on the first day, which was a, uh, a career um, kind of matchup meeting with uh, former players and current players, um, there, were, there were ushers there at the, at the building. I forgot what building it was in. But when we came in, they said, welcome back. Now, I've never heard that. And I was talking to guys who were there who played for Era. They never heard it. And you know, I was with Coach Holson, great coach. He never talked about having players back the way Marcus had or or has. And so something as small as welcome back—you got an elevator, somebody said, "Hey, well, welcome back to the university." I mean, that's huge. And you, you talk about the amazing players that have played. Uh, at Notre Dame, and, and a lot of them don't necessarily feel feel welcomed back. I mean, that's that, that's crazy. Um, when uh, Coach Kelly left, uh, on my podcast, I had a bunch of former players kind of talking about talking about their reactions. And Tim Brown told the story about how um, he contacted the university today. You know, you know, I want to come up for a game, and they gave him general admission tickets like way up in the rafters this is tim brown i mean this (laughs) dude won you the heisman trophy he was the last heisman trophy winner and you guys are giving them journal admission tickets please you know so he calls up reggie brooks who at the time was 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 working for the university and he explained it and you know he was you want to be in a box but that's the way you're supposed to treat your players, in general, I don't care if you're, you know, a starter or Heisman Trophy winner. You have to treat them with that type of respect, right? So, so that's just one example. So you have this Legacy Weekend, and it was great because there was a golf tournament, there was a meet and greet with the staff, current current coaches uh, and staff members, and the former players, and then you had the uh, the career um, dinner with the players, and then. Um, there was a pregame mass for the spring game and and the, the former players were invited to that as well. And I attended, And it was just an amazing experience. And and it kind of brought me back to when I was a player And the the four years I went to mass here. And even though I'm not Catholic, I, I thought it was important to be with the group of guys that I'm about to go to battle with. Right. Which which I thought was was so interesting, and people have different takes on it. Um, you know, I've heard one former player talk about, you know, I'm I'm ready to go beat somebody's ass. Like, why don't I go to church before I, before I do that? <clears throat> but the idea that you're kind of preparing yourself mentally was important. So I'm, I was a huge proponent of Marcus um, kind of reinstituting doing that, but having the chance to kind of experience it with the team. Was, was really a great experience. And then it was interesting because, you know, a lot of the older players loved it. And it was interesting because, you know, you want to talk about kids who may not be Catholic or 18 years old, you know, why am I in this mass? What the hell's going on here? Mm-hmm. And without going into much detail, I mean, they were able to kind of to, to jazz it up a little bit, right? So it's not just some kid who, who is not Catholic walking in there, and not knowing what's going on. I mean, it was really kind of appealing. I thought it was appealing to everyone. And with that ability, um, I think Marcus understands that, hey, you know, I, I love that tradition. Let's just kind of maybe uh, do it a little differently. We, we can uh, tweak it, but it's important for, for, for this to happen. So, you know, it's a, it's a combination of all those things. And you, know, you had 300 former players there and we all walked away kind of smiling and kind of patting each other on the back going, man, this is a great experience. I can't wait till next year. I mean, we had 300 people with kind of a short notice. I mean, now guys we're going to go out there and talk about it to our fellow teammates and realize that, Hey, you know, we are welcomed back now. And it's something as simple as, and he said, guys, you can come to any practice you want you can come all the time, you know, don't worry about it. And, that necessarily wasn't the case with Brian Kelly or even Coach Weiss. And so the idea that he's welcoming these former players with open arms is great because what does that show? That, that shows, one, that we're family. We always talk about the, the, the Notre Dame family and, hey, these are great Notre Dame players, but the players never felt welcome back. <laughs> and so they talked about this family and all the former players like, yeah, well, whatever. And they kind of shook their head like, yeah, we can't even go to practice. What are you talking about? my family, right? And so now what's going on is you're seeing these current players and you see someone like Jerome Bettis on campus, right? Or you see somebody like Tim Brown, or you see some these other guys who may not be stars, but they're amazing businessmen in their own, um, in their own professions. And oh, by the way, they did the same things you did. And so I think that's very important for the current players to see the former players back at practice, and engaging with
2: them. Speaking of engagement, Chris, um, I don't know if you were at the Thursday morning practice, but um, between Thursday and Saturday, did you get a chance to interact with some of the current players? Did you get a chance to interact
1: with any of the recruits? Uh, I I, I was able to talk to some of the the recruits. Um, There was an event right before the, the spring game we're kind of all together in the um, uh, I think they call it the, the Irish athletic facility or something like that. Um, it's the, uh, the indoor practice field. Right. Um, they had an event there. Uh, Coach Freeman spoke a little bit, they had a chance to kind of mingle with uh, some of the recruits and their families there. And, you know, to a T it was always like, Hey, what was it like for you here? Um, you know, what experience is different than you know, since now Coach Freeman's in there And then as far as the current players, I wasn't able to go to the practice Thursday morning because we had actually moved Wednesday. And so, like, we moved to the area where we we moved to the the Maryville area Wednesday. And I thought I was was signed up to go um, on um, Thursday morning, but it was very early. And I was trying to (laughs) recuperate from our move. So I was not able to attend that practice. But I took a handful of leave, and I was able to attend the, the <laughs> dinner later on that evening. But I had a chance to mingle with some of the current players. And, you know, it's great to have this type of environment. Um, the first time I saw them was at the career event. And, you know, the, these young men were kind of looking you in the eye and shaking your hand. And, you know, I didn't wasn't too concerned about hey, if you're a starter or if you're not a starter, it was, you know, you, you guys are going to be in our shoes in several years. You know, what do you want to know? And there were some great questions. Um, and I think we had a chance to be kind of great examples for for the current students.
0: Chris, you've been able to do the George podcast for a while now. I'm curious what what have you gained from that experience? What has that been like to be able to do that? Do you feel I, – I mean, you've talked about being closer to the program now when you're invited back. Like, do you feel closer to the program? You're, you're watching it more closely and, and talking to people around the program a little bit more? Because I know it's not just Notre Dame topics, but um, a lot of that seems to circle back to, to Notre Dame on the podcast.
1: Oh, no, it's just Notre Dame topics. I mean, I, I, I will not <laughs> lie. I, I am an absolute homework, <laughs> But I will be honest, right? <laughs> and so it was kind of interesting. So I, the, the podcast is called the Zorch Podcast, Conversations with Leaders and Legends. And although Notre Dame is not in the title, basically, it's just about folks at Notre Dame, right? So we've had some amazing people. We have, we've got Tom Mendoza on, um, who y'all might not know, but he wrestled, actually, in, in, in high school. It was really interesting. Uh, we had Dan Hesse, who was a former uh, CEO at Sprint. Y'all might not know this, but um, he was on... The crew team right so you have all these amazing folks who are not necessarily football guys but who are folks who are associated with with the university uh we also had jimmy dunn who was last year's uh, commencement speaker right and uh it's just some amazing people anyway so to answer your question you, you know it's so interesting because i thought i knew these guys so the first guys i interview, like Tony rice my guys like tim ryan Uh, Pat Terrell, guys that I hung out with all the time, Todd Light, and even the stories that I got from them kind of talking in this environment, I learned so much new stuff, and so that was kind of encouraging, and as I did it, um, you know, every week, I wound up finding out more and more information about these guys that I thought I knew, and it's so interesting because, you know, the podcast isn't about... um, you know, how many tackles you had or, you know, how many touchdowns you scored or whatever, you know, it's about, tell us about your time at Notre Dame. What did you learn by going to Notre Dame? How did you get interested in Notre Dame? You know, what are you doing now? And so these elements that that you're able to kind of put together and like I said, I'm hearing things for the first time. Like Mike Stonebreaker shared a story. I knew he didn't play a sophomore year, but now I know why. Like, I, I didn't know exactly why he didn't play, but then he went into the store and why he didn't. I was like, wow, I didn't even know that. And I, I've known the guy for 30 years. Right. And so it's, it's so interesting because, you know, I'm bringing out a little bit more. And I think, folks, because we, we share that common bond of, of sharing that locker room, um, they're able to kind of share stories that they might not, they may not do with someone like you guys. Being being part of the media, right? Even though I, I I am part of the media now, I do have an official uh, membership to the Football Writers Association of, Association of America. Now mm-hmm. I, I am a member there, so I may I may be considered part of the media? I'm not sure, but you know I don't know if Joe Montana tells a story about how and this was so fascinating. Um, NC State had just won the national championship in basketball the year before he was being recruited, and he was about to take a a scholarship to play basketball at NC state. And his dad was like, you know what, you may be a better uh, football player than basketball player, but imagine if Joe Montana takes that, right? I mean, it, 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 the the stories are so interesting and I'm able to kind of pull things out that, that maybe you guys might, or I'm sorry, they may, they may not feel comfortable kind of sharing with you versus telling stories with me now. By no means am I a journalist. I don't even know that stuff. All I want to do is just kind of have fun with these guys. Sometimes we have cocktails, sometimes we don't. So the idea is just to kind of have fun. But we're we're able to bring up so many interesting, interesting, interesting stories that that folks love it. I mean, I get comments all the time about how uh, exciting they 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 felt watching because they didn't know something about. A, a, uh a player uh tom gatewood um was was the first black captain and although his him and his team experienced a lot of racism when he was playing for example um they went to play i think it was georgia and they were allowed in the hotel there was a interesting story about that he talked about that but you know it wasn't until he got home to notre dame when he was elected captain that he kind of felt the worst because his phone kept ringing and people were, you know, doing kind of saying crazy things. There was no uh, voicemail at the time. So, you know, he's picking up his phone in his room and people are yelling at him because he's the first black captain. I mean, those are stories that you don't necessarily read about every day. And so I'm able to kind of pull those stories out of guys.
2: Well, Chris, I, I have a theory too that these guys have seen you play and they may be opening up because they're worried about what will happen to them if they don't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I wish. No, I'm I, wish I wish. No, I wish. You kidding. know, and it's, it's just so interesting because um, you know, I was able to have Ross Brown around a couple of months before he passed away. And, you know, hearing the the, the knowledge that that he has and, and really now um kind of understanding the the type of person he was, but I mean, he was probably the most decorated player in the history of Notre Dame. I mean, he was fifth in the Heisman uh, voting ballot. He won the Maxwell award. This is all as a defensive player. So, you know, it's just so interesting. You, you, you find out so much about these guys.
2: Right. My last question. Our last question is, um, you know, you've had some experience in college administration. I wondered, did you ever consider coaching or, do you look at coaching and say, "Boy, I'm glad I didn't pick that."
1: <laughs> um, I I love the the admin the administration route. Um, coaching, I was fortunate enough uh, to be offered an opportunity. Well, several opportunities in coaching. One was by Coach Holtz. Um, it was my first year of law school. He had just taken over the South Carolina job, and he, he called me up and asked me if I wanted to um, be his defensive line coach. And, you know, I obviously felt honored, but I didn't necessarily go that route. So, but I understood because those hours are long. <laughs> and I've seen, I mean, when I was working at Notre Dame, uh, Coach Weiss was was, was was the head coach. And there were staff, and, and the the big thing for assistant coaches is you always want to get there before the head coach. And you always want to leave after the head coach. But Charlie had this crazy schedule. Like he'd get there like five in the morning and then he'd go home for lunch, maybe for a couple hours and he'd come back. But the coaches would get there like at, at four 30 to be there before he got there. They didn't take that break during the day. Cause they didn't know when he'd be back. And then he, he, he'd leave, he'd leave after he would, He'd leave for the day, like at 11 or 12, you know, so these, some of these guys slept at the office. So I was like, you know, and I knew um, coach Holtz was a great coach, but being an assistant coach um, under him was kind of challenging. So I kind of knew that. So I was like, yeah, there's no way I'm going to be an assistant coach, but um, I I love coaches. I, I don't know where my life would be without coaches that are in my life. So I have a ton of respect for them. I just could not do it on my own. I want to make one more, uh, comment. Uh, it's so interesting when I was on the podcast with Marcus, um, and although I am a Homer, I mean, I love their name, obviously, but I'm willing to kind of call a spade a spade. And I, on my podcast, I also have a college football show where we, I, I, I do, um, I rank the, the top 16 teams cause I'm part of the super 16, uh, poll um uh with the national football writers excuse me the football writers association of america and the uh national football foundation i've been fortunate enough to be one of the folks that kind of rank those teams so i have a show and we were on the show and my producer was like hey brian kelly just left notre dame i'm like there's no way blah 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 so we're like he's like who do you think be the head coach i started naming off names and they were like, well, what about your boy Marcus Freeman? I was like, there's no way he's, you know, he's young. There's no way he could be a first-year head coach, blah, blah, blah. And so it's so interesting because after that, people gave me a lot of crap because I was. they were like, man, you, you, you guess on your show and everything. But I was like, hey, man, I'm being honest. And so, of course, I had to address it when he was just on the show uh, recently. <laughs> and I was like, hey, I just want to let you know. And it's so funny because he said that in his press conference. I don't know if you guys remember, but he was like, I didn't think I was going to get the job. You know, it was one of those things where, like, you know, because he was young, uh, he was black, is going to be the first head coach. I mean, these are, these are things that folks don't necessarily associate with being the head coach at Notre Dame, but he just talked about how kind of Jack Swerbick went through all the evaluations, and I'm sure he should talk to other people, and, and Marcus wound up kind of uh, rising to the top, so that was great. Um, and I just want to give one shameless plug for my podcast, you can check it out on YouTube. Just go to YouTube at Chris or check out YouTube uh, slash Chris Zorich50.
0: All right, Chris, that's all we have for you. We really appreciate your time, and we wish you continued success with the Zorich podcast.
1: Absolutely, thank you guys very much. I can't wait to get you guys on there sometime. Maybe we we can talk some uh, some something outside of Notre Dame.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <I
1: don't>
2: know. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks again, Chris. Yep, thanks, you guys. All right, now it's time for questions.
0: You can submit questions to us on Twitter or on the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at E. Hansen ND. First question we have is from Rockney76 on the Insider Lounge. Given no new entries into the transfer portal, will Notre Dame be scholarship challenged this year and will Notre Dame be unable to take receivers in the portal?
2: Well, I think... If there's a match out there, Notre Dame will find a way to make it work within the, uh, within the 85 scholarship limit. And we are, I think, probably as surprised as you are that no one has appeared in the portal. And I think that, um, you know, I thought there might be an administrative delay, but we have pretty good source that monitors the portal, and there's no Notre Dame people, new Notre Dame people in it since Sibo Flemister and Harrison Leonard, who weren't counted against the 86 anyways at at that point. They were both off the roster. So how does Notre Dame add and get to 85? You know, there's there's a couple ways. Um, You know, there's people that could still enter the portal post-May 1st deadline and either try to get a waiver to be eligible in 2022 or just sit out the old-fashioned way um, and transfer to a school. And that sometimes happens uh, after people go through the summer and say, you know what, I'm not really going to have a chance to play. I'm just going to sit out and, and move on. There's also medical hardships. Sometimes there's guys that have Like David Adams is a recent example, um, and uh, Hunter Spears, where their injuries are just too much for them to come back and play football, and so they medically retire, and they can finish their education without counting against the 85. And then there's some wiggle room with, you know, Ron Paulus' scholarship, having a parent that works at Notre Dame, you have some walk-ons that have been granted, um scholarships and usually that's kind of retroactive to the year that they've just completed it doesn't necessarily mean they would get multiple years so so there are some options to still add yeah it's it, it's not
0: it's the the least fun part of the whole process to sort of figuring out uh once you're around that uh scholarship limit to figure out okay how do we how do we get below that so uh I, there still is some flexibility there although it's not a lot of flexibility, um, so I, which isn't that a strange. Because I mean, we didn't expect Notre Dame to add three or four graduate transfers or transfers of any kind, regardless if they're graduate transfers. Um, but uh, I think there's still a chance that Notre Dame could add a receiver or two. Although there isn't a lot of hasn't been a lot of momentum on that front in terms of Notre Dame having traction with with uh, with re- receivers yet. So we'll, that's something. We'll continue to monitor. Obviously now there's a pretty clear sense of, okay, these are the guys who are available and we'll see if there's anyone that makes sense for Notre Dame in terms of being a match. Next question is from Nathan Reynolds at Enforcers 2117. With the injuries and lack of numbers at wide receiver, is Indy going to be running a lot of t- two running back and two tight end
2: sets? Well, what I'll say about this is they have eight scholarship wide receivers um, right now. And if all of them are healthy, they have enough wide receivers to do everything they want. It's just that hasn't been the case with some of those wide receivers. Right, and yeah. so you get down to five, then you are limited somewhat. If if those five aren't all your front line guys, guys that are able to express your offense the best. But but I think Notre Dame has some um, isn't going to be forced into certain formations and position groups because of some versatility of some of their players. I think Jadarian Price and Chris Tyree can help um, be slot receivers if you needed to bolster that position. I think Eli Reardon and uh, Michael Mayer could express the W receiver, the boundary receiver um, in some plays. Now, I think Notre Dame still is going to do the things that you talked about, but I think Tommy wants as much position flexibility and, and formation flexibility as he can, makes it more difficult to defend. So I don't think they are cornered into, you know, doing those things more unless they want to do those things more. Yeah, I,
0: I... I think we've discussed this previously. I, I don't think there'll be a significant increase from last season in, in terms of the two running backs or two tight end looks. Um, it certainly will be part of the offense again. Um, but the the thought of obviously you need guys to stay healthy. I mean, just, I just look at the the Fiesta Bowl. Now, obviously, that's not sustainable. They can't throw the ball that many times with, with using that few receivers. I don't. I don't. Maybe they use four. Most of for most of the game, um, and that's that's not really sustainable. And, that, and they were able to do that because okay, this is the last game; we can gas these guys, and they were clearly gassed by the end of the game. Um, but that's not what Notre Dame's offense is going to look like. Um, so um, you're hoping that you can stay healthy enough, but I don't I don't think it's like oh man, we don't have enough players to field the the offense that we want to field now. The, some of those players might not be if you're talking about this number of scholarship wide receivers, they might not be to the to the level that Notre Dame wants it to be to be on the field and might say, OK, we're better off playing. Um, a, a second running back or a second tight end than putting Deion Colsey on the field for 30 snaps or something like that, um, that 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 will certainly play a role, sort of the, the readiness of the receivers on the roster. Um, in, in addition to the, the the health of the receivers who are available. Speaking of healthy uh, receivers, next question is from at Mike Devoy one. do you think Joe Wilkins Jr. will be back in time for Ohio State?
2: Well, that's the plan, but you know we've seen like with Kevin Austin in 2020, he came back, played a couple of games and then got hurt in that second game, and then was out um the rest of the season uh so he missed the rest of the season so with injuries you're there's no guarantee uh but right now that looks like a realistic timeline and we'll just have to see if it continues down that timeline.
0: Yeah I I think it's too soon to say I mean even even if I was the doctor (laughs) that working with Joe I'm not sure I think part of the process I think he's still on the process where he's in a cast and the the, the, the fracture is healing. So I, I think you got to sort of get through that before you can see where you're at in terms of progressing towards uh, a return to the field. I think that time frame is reasonable for him to get back, but um, I don't know. There, there certainly is no guarantee. Um, I don't know exactly the severity of the injury and that impacts sort of recovery time. Um, so I, I think... I mean, from Notre Dame's point of view, I think you sort of have to prepare that he won't be available. You have to get all the other guys ready to play and, and uh, assume that Joe Wilkins isn't going to be there for you, um, but then hope that, that he will be able to because there is a chance that he could be. Next question is from at Chan 12 Got to be honest, is Drew Pine the guy? I know they like Tyler Buckner, but Pine looked in control a couple times last year. Well,
2: I don't know how to. Uh, I'm trying to be diplomatic here. Um, I, I think Drew Pine. No. Uh, no, no, the answer is no. But but what Drew Pine can be is a really good number two who can win you games in stretches, coming in in the second half with an injured starter and win you a game like that. I think it's a completely different set of circumstances if Drew is the starter and you are a defensive coordinator trying to make him play to his weaknesses um, rather than a guy that you only kind of casually prepared for and that can come in in the heat of the game and, and, and help you win. So, no, I don't think he's... Uh, the guy that can be the starter at Notre Dame. But again, you want him to be a really good number two, and I think that's what he is right now.
0: Yeah, I don't think Drew Pine is the guy either, and I, I wasn't necessarily laughing at the thought of Drew Pine being the guy. I, I was laughing at Eric, the way Eric was thinking and and responding to it. Um, well, I was I, trying to
2: think if he asked this question during a happy hour <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, I think most of the people that were on that bandwagon jumped off of it after the blue Gold game.
0: Yeah, well, maybe he doesn't have Peacock. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, but Drew Pine has, certainly has the personality for it, and I think he would have support uh, from his teammates to do that because he, he has the moxie. He has uh, the love yeah. for Notre Dame. He, he has all the sort of intangibles. But I don't know that he ha- necessarily has the physical gifts and the consistency to be a better option than someone that does have those better physical gifts like Tyler Buckner. Um, So to me, that, that is why this, this will end up being Tyler Buckner's job. I I still think Drew Pine can do some good things as a college football quarterback. um, But I don't know that the, the highest potential for the offense is with him as the quarterback, Um, especially this season. I I think, I I think if you, if Drew Pine is in, in an offense that is loaded and has, Uh, and and is best suited for him as the quarterback, then I think that he would be in a better position for that. But I don't think this offense is necessarily that. Um, So I I don't think it would would be best for him or the offense to be um, the starting quarterback uh, in the 2022 season. Next question is from SJB75 on the Insider Lounge. If you had the choice, would you rather play at Ohio State to open the season or play Colorado State at home?
2: If uh, I'm assuming that then I am the um, head coach of Notre Dame and in that scenario in 2022, I would pick at Ohio State and I know that probably sounds crazy, but I think I, I could lose that game and still make the playoff and I would also find out instantly what my team's weaknesses were and how what I needed to do to fix them and could still go be a one-loss team and make the playoff. If I play Colorado State, I don't learn much about my team. I, I've seen these games before. Um, you know, Notre Dame used to play Michigan in its opener for a long stretch when I was, you know, earlier in my career. And, you know, there wasn't a playoff then. You just had to win the national championship. But in this playoff format, I, I love finding out about my team early, and uh, hopefully being able to win under that scenario. But if you lose, still having the chance to uh, run the table and uh, get into the playoff.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm not in agreement there. If I'm the coach, I will, I'd rather open at, at home against Colorado State, especially with a new head coach, with a new quarterback. I'd, I'd rather have those guys be able to get a, get a win under their belt have some of the pressure off them for that first for first game. Just, <laughs> the stakes are – like like you mentioned, you're right. Notre Dame can still make the playoff if they lose at Ohio State. Um, but the stakes, it's not going to feel like that. It's going to feel like this is a must-win game. We have to win this. It's, and obviously, it's
2: not going to be an easy game to win. Well, um, we don't know what sequences after the game either. Like, if you're taking Ohio State completely off the schedule and putting Colorado State there, I don't like that. Sure. If you say Colorado State at home and then Ohio State a week or two later, okay. And that's yeah. really what 2023 is gonna look like.
0: Yeah, that that and that was sort of the scenario
2: I was I was
0: thinking of. I guess it, uh if we would have to get rid of a game otherwise, because obviously Colorado State isn't on the schedule, but um I, I think uh um in my opinion, uh but but uh, as the coach I'd I'd want to sort of have that ease into that if you, especially if you know you're going to be playing Ohio State at some point um I do as a reporter though uh it's Ohio State every time I I love that going be able to go to Ohio State and see what Notre Dame has um and it's going to be challenged from the start now. Ohio uh I would imagine like as a fan too uh, I would probably prefer the Colorado State option as well um, I don't know that I uh, as a fan I would want to be uh opening the season at Ohio State uh so uh but no one has a choice in the matter now. It's set, and that's, and that's, uh, that's the reality. So we'll see how Marcus Freeman and, and Notre Dame handles it. Next question is from Tyler Martin at Tmart Mart underscore the golfer. Um, and this one's a little bit difficult to follow, but I think I have the gist here. These players are great, at least in high school, but say Marcus Freeman goes and loses bad at Ohio State. I'm upset, but I get it. Manage expectations. But if the 23 class is a bust, do we get rid of Freeman? How long do
2: we ride with him? Yes, I understand this is fictitious, but asking as of now. You know, I, I'm not sure that I understand the question, other than it sounds like you're rooting for Marcus to lose, or you think that this wasn't a good choice, the way the question's phrased. But I'm going to answer it anyways. Um, first of all, with the question first. What what's the timeline to determine whether the 2023 class is a bust? And I guess the only reason that they would be a bust is because the players weren't being developed properly. And then in that case, then you've made a mistake with the head coach. But I think you've got to give Marcus or whoever would have been the next head coach after Brian Kelly, I think you need to give them time to prove themselves. You know, we kind of went through this on the Insider Lounge in a debate about Neil Ivy, And Neil took a 13 and 18 team, turned them into a 10 and 10 team, and then 24 and nine. And yeah, there are things where I watch games and I kind of pick things apart or that I don't agree with. But, um, you know, I don't think there should be a timeline or a thought process right now when you pull the plug with Neil Ivy, given what she's done. And I think it's the same thing with Marcus. I think there's going to be growing pains because there is with every first year head coach. But I think what he brings to the table on the recruiting side and, and what he's shown in his past with player development at Cincinnati and at Notre Dame, I, I just don't see that as a realistic possibility or plausibility that the 2023 class is gonna take. So I think you give him um, you know, if, if things aren't if things are just disastrous after four years, then you start thinking about did we make a mistake or how we how can we make this better? But I mean it just seems like such a premature question. I'm scratching my head. <laughs>
0: yeah, it, it did jump to a lot of conclusions there. Um, I, I I mean, there's no, if you're going to get rid of Marcus Freeman in a couple of years, I I don't, then why'd you hire him in the first place? (laughs) He's a first time head coach. His upside is what he can do in terms of bringing talent into the program. Um, and he's going to be learning how to be a head coach on the job. Uh, so I understand like if you're saying after the 2026 season and the 2023 class turned out that they weren't as great as, as many people thought they'd be as seniors, um, then you can sort of have this discussion, but I think you have so much more to evaluate than that. What did it, what are the, what are the the underclassmen like? How much winning has happened between now and then? Um, I, I just, <laughs> there's a lot of variables there now. Um there could be things that happen in the first couple of years. like, all right, this is a disaster. We have to get rid of that. I don't anticipate that happening, Um, but you have to, you have to let Marcus Freeman put his spin on the program and that's not going to be, be instant. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of calling the 23 class a bust, I don't, you're going to have to wait a long time to get to that point to decide that. And (laughs) the good thing about being a great recruiter, if you do bust, then you have, a great, you have great, cl- great classes that follow them. Now, um, if for some reason you're imagining, okay, the 23 class is great, but this season doesn't go as planned and then Marcus Freeman can no longer recruit well, um, I, that just doesn't seem like a, a very realistic scenario of something that would happen in such a short span of time. Next question is from Burt Leonard at Burt2834. Off-season question, how ridiculous a season would Michael Mayer have to have to get Heisman talked? Something I don't think a tight end has ever done.
2: Um, I kind of introduced that concept in a story that I did recently. That I think if he were a better version of himself in 2022, and Notre Dame was a playoff contending team, he would at least be on the periphery of Heisman talk. Um, and and if Notre Dame were a solid playoff team. I think it could get serious, not to the point where he would win, but to the point where he might be able to get to New York because he would be the best player on that team. And I think Tommy Reese is going to come up with some inventive ways to get him the ball. Um, and he's freaky enough where he's going to have some highlights. Remember the where he caught the ball off the kid's back last year, right? Uh, right. You know, he's going to have highlights like that, which get people excited. Um, in terms of the history of the tight end being involved in the Heisman race, you come to the right school. Um, <laughs> Leon Hart uh, won it. Now it was 1949, uh, <laughs> but he was basically a tight end. That was during the years of one platoon football. But Leon Hart was a pro tight end with the Lions and was a college, basically a college tight end at the time. He, was- he played. He played end on uh, both sides field right he played and on both sides of the field he was uh you know the biggest Heisman trophy winner at that point uh I think that Heisman was only less than 20 years old at that time then you had Ken McAfee in 1977 and Chris you know referenced Ross Browner they kind of split the 77 vote and you also had Joe Montana on that team on a national title winning team McAfee was third Browner was fifth Um, And there really was only one other tight end that got into the top five, and that was a Penn State tight end. Uh, I don't know if I'm butchering his name, Ted Kowaliak, in 1968, um, Penn State was fourth. Uh, You know, Kyle Pitts was, I think, 10th a couple years ago. Uh, But if somebody's going to get in that conversation, it's going to be somebody like Michael Mayer, and it's going to be a school like Notre Dame.
0: Yeah, Pitt, Pitts is who I wanted to, to mention. He because he did finish in the top ten in voting, and he was actually the first to do so since Ken McAfee. Um, So he uh, he and and he he didn't have a ton of votes. I mean, if you're not familiar with the Heisman voting process, you get to put three names on your ballot, um, and Kyle Pitts was was on 17 ballots, seven second place votes, and 10 third place votes, um, and his stats. He was carried by his touchdowns. He had 12 touchdowns, which is a lot of touchdowns for a tight end. Um, but he only had 43 catches for 770 yards. Um, now, obviously, that's a good yard per catch number. But um, Michael Mayer, I think you could argue, had better stats last season outside of the touchdowns with 71 catches for 840 yards. Um, so if, if Notre Dame is undefeated, that's that would be the biggest thing for for Michael Mayer, being the best player on, on an undefeated team. Um that 2020 season Ian book actually finished higher than Kyle Pitts in the voting. He finished ninth. Um, And I don't know that anyone, I I mean, it surprises me that he was, he finished that high because I don't know that many people would consider Ian book a a Heisman trophy candidate. I mean, he wasn't producing eye popping numbers. He was just the quarterback of Notre Dame when they were undefeated. So um, in terms of what, like what the path would look like for mayor, like he would need to have a big game and a victory over Ohio state. And that would sort of say, okay, we need to start considering Michael Mayer here as as a potential Heisman candidate. Now, I don't know that that would be sustainable, and I don't know that this would ever be. It doesn't seem necessarily realistic that he could win the Heisman Trophy, but I do think he could get himself in the conversation with with an incredibly product, productive season, as long as Notre Dame is winning, winning at that level. Next question, another Michael Mayer question at the real twnzl. Uh, any chance Michael Mayer comes back for
2: a fourth year? The 23 team could be special, I think. Uh, you know, knowing him, he could surprise people because he's his own person, but I just don't think that that's a great business decision. I, don't, I think Michael Mayer is smart enough to understand <laughs> that if he has a better season than he did last year, he's going to be a first-round draft pick, and he'll come back and get his degree and be the Jerome Bettis Uh, earlier in his life uh, than Jerome is doing it. And uh, I just don't see, see that as a possibility, even if Notre Dame is going to be super good in 2023, I think he's going to make the decision. You know, it's interesting because the NIL money may be so good. Some players do stay in college another year, but I don't think first round draft picks will do that. Right. Yeah. And even, I guess the question is, is like, well, is there,
0: do people value NFL, does the, does the NFL value tight ends to make a guy a first round draft pick, which obviously they did with Kyle Pitts, would they do that with Michael Mayer? Um, I'm not sure, but I think I mean it would be surprising he, to me if he's been he's in the him. mocks I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> well, right, yeah, but, but Tommy Kramer
2: and, and Corey Robinson were in early mock drafts. <laughs> That's <a> true, <laughs> but but not by I think reliable people either. I mean, it uh, it's been pretty pretty universal in these early mocks of Michael Mayer. I mean, Todd McShay's Todd McShay didn't have Corey Robinson and Tommy Kramer. Now, some no, of but uh, Matt, Matt Miller. It. Matt Miller did. He?
0: He's an ESPN
2: boy. Uh, but um, wow. I'm pretty, uh, pretty sure the
0: Sporting News was who had Tommy Kramer. But anyways, I digress. Um, I, he, He's going to be, the. I, I mean, barring anything crazy, he's going to be the number one tight end in next year's draft. So that's why you, you leave. And I mean, if you, if for some reason he wanted to come back, I mean, there's a chance that he wouldn't be the number one tight end in the next draft because then Bach Bauer, Bach, Bach Brock Bowers from Georgia would be eligible for the following year's draft, which he isn't next year because he he was just a freshman this past season. So um, it, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for him to return, um, in my opinion. So I, I just don't think that it's very, very likely that it would, have, that it would happen. Uh, next question from Michael Kelly at Michael's Bunch of Numbers. I'm not a big draft person or even NFL person, but I love seeing the training data at the combine. Why doesn't the Notre Dame Press release 40 times, bench presses, et cetera. Does Notre Dame not provide that information? Do they not want you to provide it?
2: They do not want to provide it uh, because they feel like it puts them at a competitive disadvantage. They don't want you knowing a receiver runs a 4-6. Um, you know, I think people can look at film and kind of get ideas. Notre Dame is selective when they do. You know, there's times like when Mike McGlinchy's bench press uh, improved dramatically in Matt Bayless's first year with the program, and they wanted to kind of push that out there to show what a difference this new strength and conditioning coordinator, he's got a different title than that, but they wanted to show the difference that he made. They, they had a lot of before and after pictures with that. Uh, Brian Kelly one time mentioned Corey Holmes's 40 time, and then we were trying to get him to tell us other people's, I mean, every once in a while they will be selective and sometimes the player will tell you. Right. Uh, but um, Notre Dame is not eager to get those numbers out. We've asked for them repeatedly. We begged for them and uh, they just said, enjoy your free hot dogs in the press box and be happy with that.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's not something they, 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 they hand out. It's not in like the, the media guide every year or anything like that. Um, I mean, and, I mean, we can certainly continue to ask around, and I'm sure, like, sometimes you could get that information, sometimes you couldn't. To, to me, I mean, I the relevance, I mean, it's interesting, but, I, I mean, I can you can tell what a guy plays like his speed. You know what I mean? I mean, the reason it's valuable for the NFL people is because then they can, one, it compares guys to previous years, um, and then also you compare them to the other guys that you're evaluating as draft prospects for me as like someone who's evaluating who's playing at Notre Dame like that to me, whether or not Kevin Austin ran a four or four wasn't influencing what I thought he was doing on the field for Notre Dame, if that makes sense. So I know now some people may say, well, if he can run a four four, he should be a better receiver. I disagree with that. You mean it takes a lot more than just speed to be a good receiver. Um, so I, I think that uh, there, there's sort of a balance there. It's like, well, how much, is it worth the effort to try and get information that people don't necessarily want to make openly to you? Um, so I, I have, I have not personally spent a lot of time trying to get that information out of people. Like if a kid will say like, Hey, I'm a lot stronger. Um, they'll say, well, can you give me an example? (laughs) And then sometimes they will provide that sometimes it'll just, they will be a little bit more vague. Um, so I, I think, uh, um, and it depends. Like some guys who are known to be fast, like that information will be out there. Like Brayden Lindsay. there was one year I think they 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 maybe rattled off like the top three or something. I think they put even like the clip of it on social media. So it, it just depends. And sometimes they they want to share that information and sometimes they'd rather keep it close to guard. And then because sometimes it, it could backfire. And then if they, that's publicly available and then it comes time for the combine and they run way slower than what they were, were, were at supposedly, then then that's not a good look for the player. And it looks like they've become a worse athlete or something like that. All right. Next question is for Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. If there's some immediate success in getting pay for play under control, along with sanctioning teams, do you think they will sanction the recruits individually? If a recruits playing career
2: could be harmed, this may be a good deterrent recruits and parents know the rules too. Okay. And Marie, when you're saying sanction, I'm, taking you mean punishing is that how you take it time
0: yeah that yeah that was my understanding
2: sort of just like how how would the the ncaa yeah that's that's the implication right now that the way that between the way that the nil laws state laws are written and between the way that the ncaa has kind of pushed it out there the implication from the ncaa is that the schools would not be how liable that it would be the individual players that might have some kind of penalty. So that's that's what they're looking at. And again, is a frantic push in in a several areas and trying to get this reined in. There's a push to get Congress involved. There's a task force uh, of college leaders that is trying to put something together. So um. So keep keep your eye on the ball because it changes every day.
0: Yeah, I I don't have a full understanding of like how state NIL laws would impact the NCAA's ability to punish players or recruits or schools. Um, but certainly this has happened with similar violations in the past. Most commonly and famously, it happens in basketball players are ruled ineligible for improper benefits. Ryan Bowen as a Louisville player was ruled ineligible. That was a very public case. James Wiseman at Memphis was was ruled ineligible for a period of time. Um, The the issue is the NCAA's ability to consistently and expediently make those rulings. Um, And that's why I think uh, it's probably a big reason why so many of these NIL collectives have been pretty brazen about moving forward with it. Cause there's just, there's not a lot of fear that the NCA is going to actually get its act together and figure out what it does. And the, those collectives will just counter Sue and say, Hey, you can't do this. And yeah. I hope that the, it, it just gets stuck in litigation. And I mean, look at the Kansas basketball team. There's, there's pretty clear evidence that there was some, some things going on there with paying for players. Um, and Kansas just won a national championship. They have yet to be, um, punished yeah. for, for its role in, in that. And there are people that are like literally in jail because of their connections to recruitments of, of Kansas basketball players, um, but uh, the Kansas basketball
2: program has not been impacted yet. Well, and, and a couple things. One thing that has emboldened those collectives is the Alston uh, Supreme Court decision last year where uh, the Supreme Court basically told the NCAA, you know pretty much declawed them of any enforcement uh, of things along this line made it really difficult for them to have much clout in this area. The other thing is that laws in some states were written very carefully to protect these collectives. Now they think they're protective through the language. That doesn't mean they'd win a court case, but they think, and there are other states that are up updating their laws, to try to help these collectives right. uh, have some protection. So, oh, man, it makes my head hurt.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to need an, a legal analyst on on speed dial <laughs> for the next couple of years, I think. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. Next question, at Mikey Galve is Marie Biafore, if Marie Biafore was a recruit, how many
2: stars would she be rated? Well, she's a five-star person. I've gotten to know her a little bit. Um, and I don't know that she—I don't have her permission to say what she does for a living, but she saves lives and she makes a big difference in people's lives. And I'll—I'll I'll leave it at that. And she can decide whether she wants to mention what she does for a living. Um, I've got incredible respect for her as a person and as a, a football fan who asks great questions. So if there's a existence of a sixth star, I would give that to her. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say she's a five star question asker for
0: podcasts and chats. Absolutely. If I want to be a, a harsh grader, I would give her a four-star, four, a four star rating. Um, because I think you gotta be a uh in terms of being a five star subscriber, you have to be a regular message board contributor. Um now we're not saying that Marie needs to do that, uh, but we're definitely extremely appreciative of her uh participation in the podcast and uh, the other regular question submitters who are I would say the unsung heroes of the podcast. Uh, We always want to hear from new people too, but we are thankful that people continually submit good questions. And and Marie does, does an an excellent job at that. Next question is from Baba Ganoush at PLACT underscore ITFDB. While Notre Dame will continue to get kids who want Notre Dame and all it offers, but, Uh, I've lost myself in the question. Let me start over. While ND will continue to get kids who want ND and all it offers, but how will Notre Dame compete for the difference makers in light of the football
2: factories having boosters who can throw millions of dollars at them? I mean, we're going to find out. I mean, 2023 is the Guinea pig class, I guess with this. And as we've gone through the cycle, um, it's, the, the picture changes on, on a like weekly basis, but I will say this, you know, ND believes that it doesn't need to be somebody that outbids people, but promises uh, a competitive advantage in the NIL space for players once they do get to Notre Dame, based on branding, based on uh, opportunities, including the um uh, the initiative that brady quinn and tom mendoza are involved in and you know there's a certain kids that um pre-nil weren't going to come to notre dame based on maybe under the table money and those may be the same kids that don't choose notre dame this time will they lose a kid or two i mean they might i we're finding that out. But right now, they have the number two recruiting class in the country behind Texas Tech, which has 97 recruits in their class. No, I'm just kidding. I think it's 20. (laughs) Um, We expect, I would expect in the next week, Notre Dame to retake the lead from Texas Tech, maybe as soon as tomorrow. Um, And until that plan changes, I think Notre Dame is doing a good job of incorporating NIL into their overall recruiting message and we'll just see in December if that changes. I guess that's the best answer I can give right now. Yeah, quick quickly to the class rankings thing. Texas Tech is at 20
0: commits and I believe that is the the number of commits that are the maximum number of commits that are weighed into the class ranking. Now it'll take the top 20 commits now. So Texas Tech is going to have to get better Commits in his class to improve its ranking moving forward. Um, whereas Notre Dame certainly isn't at that 20 commitment limit yet. Um, so I think um, once Notre Dame passes Texas Tech, it should have a good chance of sort of holding off Texas Tech. Now, it doesn't mean it won't hold, it will hold off everyone else, but um, I, I think uh, Texas Tech has, I think. That last check off the top, of my head, I, I had I think they had 3 stars and four four stars. Where whereas Notre Dame doesn't have doesn't have a three star commitment; it's all four stars and five and one five star. So, um, but to the, to the question at hand, Notre Dame is it's just not going to be something. It's not uh, the NIL opportunities will be presented to to Notre Dame athletes, um, but Notre Dame's recruiting pitch is always going to be what it can do for you in the long run. The slogan for Notre Dame recruiting that they're using a lot is think big. Um, that's big as in competing for national championships and getting to the NFL, but it's also what Notre Dame can do from you, for you 40 years from now. So um, I think Notre Dame's counter is, okay, you're getting an NIL deal, but is that something that's sustainable? Are you, are you cashing in on something now that's not gonna help you in the long run? Um, and, and I think Notre Dame is sort of creeping into the NIL space. Um, and we'll, we will see how things play out as the entire NIL landscape is sort of on unstable and unpredictable ground. Um, but Kyle Hamilton didn't have any money making money, or any problem making money in NIL. And obviously, um, the, the, the counter to that is well, yeah, the best player on Notre Dame's team made a lot of money, but what about everyone? Like you're not, you want everyone to have access to that money, um, as well. And I think, uh, some of the things that are that are in the works for for Notre Dame athletes will expand that, and I think there, there's just a brand value that a Notre Dame athlete has um, that that those players will be able to to tap into once they get to Notre Dame. Notre Dame just isn't going to um, and isn't going to encourage um, folks around the program to be guaranteeing things to players before before they've come to Notre Dame. Next question is from SL Hoosier. 26, in from the Insider Lounge, I wish there were more info on where Notre Dame stands on the NIL. It's clear it's the new normal, but despite incredible success recruiting so far in the Freeman area, it's really hard to find where Notre Dame stands
2: in the NIL. I think it's a really good question. I'm not sure what he wants the answer to be. Um, from this standpoint, what we can tell is you know, Notre Dame does have collectives now, uh, not collectives that are SEC type collectives, but they do have, that does exist. There are opportunities, they have resources, they have people dedicated to NIL at Notre Dame. If, I think what the questioner is asking though, is if there was a bidding war, where would Notre Dame stand? Is that is that kind of how you're taking the implication time? Yeah,
0: I'm not sure. And I don't know if it's like, well, how would you rank Notre Dame in terms of NIL opportunities versus, I I, I don't know that there's a lot of, a lot of the NIL stuff isn't really tangible. Um, right. A lot it's of it is not. speculation. Um, so it's hard to really put a, 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 a finger on it. I mean, unless like you want to point to like these deals that are being reported, although they're always reported without anyone's name to them. Um with the amount of money that is being presented to say a five-star quarterback or whatnot, um, so, so I guess I'm not exactly sure how to quantify that, and I think that's maybe what the question asker is is looking for, um, and I, I also think there's probably just like a looking for reassurance, like, hey, is, is Notre Dame getting getting lapped on this kind of stuff?
2: Yeah, I, I, I think Notre Dame is going to stay out of the gray area, um, but I think they are doing everything they can to be competitive. And if it got to the point where this task force, where Congress said, you know what, we can't do anything um, to make this fair and equitable. I mean, it's going to evolve into that somehow. You may have. Football players being classified as employees at some point um, and collective bargaining and things of that nature. It's going to go somewhere. uh, But during this window of uncertainty, it's just difficult to tangibly say this is where Notre Dame stands. To this point, they're not only surviving, they're thriving. And we'll have to see if that carries into the summer. Because every every player in this class is a four or five star prospect, and that's never happened during the rivals era. That that eleven players deep, I'm not even sure if it happened five players deep that there <laughs> wasn't at least a three star.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the stuff that isn't isn't maybe as interesting to people and to, or, or as appealing to people in terms of okay, what is Notre Dame doing to? educated players on NIL um, and sort of making them aware of what opportunities exist for them um, and maybe how to go about approaching NIL deals. I think Notre Dame is doing all that. I think they're doing the right things on that front. Um, the other stuff in terms of where is NIL in terms of, or Notre Dame in terms of the money that is being presented to players like that, that is the stuff that is outside of Notre Dame's ability to control. Um, and even communicate that they can't, they can't say, well, if you come here we're, we know that Coca-Cola is going to give you this or, uh, um, but there, but there's different programs that are being connected to Notre Dame, whether it's the NBC thing um, and NIL opportunities that N- NBC is working on with Notre Dame athletes, uh, the fund um, that's being led by Brady Quinn. We had Tom Mendoza on the podcast to discuss that the Irish players club being led by Mick Asaf, and money that is, being redirected to players from supporters. Um, so there's a number of different things that are happening there that that aren't sort of a, uh, the contracts that we're seeing discussed elsewhere that we don't really know what the uh, legitimacy or uh, <laughs> what how like actionable some of those reported contracts are. Next question is from Jeff at laser 871. Do you think the Dante Moore recruitment excitement, let's call it, is something ND fans just have to get used to if we're battling for the highest caliber athletes, or do you think there's something unique about this pursuit that's dragging us out? I realize it's still early-ish, but I know most fans wanted a commitment after the recent visit to South Bend. Hmm.
2: Well, I think with, Notre Dame going after higher caliber players consistently. You're going to see recruiting battles. Even if, even if players commit like Keon Keeley, Notre Dame has to recruit him hard all the way to December, and and that's what you're going to see. This is this is the stratosphere that Notre Dame has stepped into. By improving its recruiting, is that you're dealing with, you know, players that other schools don't want to let go of. Even if they say, "Don't call me," I'm 101% committed to Notre Dame. Uh, they're going to continue to work on those players and try to get them to change their mind. And some of them are going to take visits. And this is just where we are. And I think with Dante specifically, I I'm. I think that he wanted to get out and see what else was out there. I think the NIL element is part of seeing what else is out there. The NIL possibilities, not necessarily that he wants, hey, what's what are you guys going to pay me? Uh, but more, what, what are the different programs and so forth? Just because he wants to make sure he's making the right decision, I still think he'll end up in the class. Uh, but this is... If you want to play big boy recruiting, you got to put on your big boy pants as a fan and just kind of deal with it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I do think there are variables in not just, the not just Dante Moore's recruitment, but the, the recruitment of players in this 2023 cycle, um, because these are kids that had limited access to campuses um, because of the COVID pandemic. Um, they are, one of the first classes to experience the NIL possibilities. So there people are trying to wrap their heads around that. And so it makes sense that recruits that are this high profile, aren't going to rush into a decision and want to sort of see everything and take in as much information as they can. Um, because in the future, Dante Moore will have made a lot of these visits already. Now that doesn't mean he wouldn't still end up taking his official visits. Cause that is a, still an extra part of the process that, some po- folks want to get to, um, and I mean, partially because I, that that affords you the opportunity to go somewhere without having to pay for it, um, and, and so maybe you can go to farther away places. Although Dante Moore himself has has traveled a lot before making official visits, um, so, but I but I do think you have to get used to it. The high profile quarterback recruitments are like this. Um, I do think so much of the nervousness and, oh, no, is something going wrong sort of perspective that we hear. Now, I don't know how widespread that is. Sometimes that can be the the, the most – the people who are the most nervous and most worried usually have the loudest voices. But I think it's sort of reflective to the coverage and how uh, the recruiting industry covers this, and both ourselves and our competitors cover the Dante Moore recruitment, whether it's making predictions that he's going to come to Notre Dame um, and – Reporting that Notre Dame would like to get his recruitment, uh, get a commitment from him. Um, And then when that doesn't happen, people think, well, something must be going wrong. It's like, well, no, he's always wanted to make official visits and he's sort of stuck with his plan to make official visits. And that makes fans uncomfortable because they were hopeful that it it would sort of end with that most recent visit to South Bend. Um, So it's always going to feel more high stakes at the quarterback position. Um, the way Notre Dame is is pursuing basically Dante Moore and Dante Moore alone at this point makes it feel even more high stakes, um, and and that can certainly backfire. But we can, but we have to wait to see how it plays out and what what would come after Dante Moore going somewhere else if that were the case. Next question is from Rhino eleven thirty four on the Insider Lounge. If Notre Dame misses on Dante Moore, is Avery Johnson the only realistic alternative? Could they regret not pushing harder for Christopher
2: Bizzino? Um, I don't. I don't know that even Avery Johnson is in play. Um, he's uncommitted. I guess they could circle back to me. Likes Notre Dame a lot. I think the most viable and the most uh, likely scenario is for Notre Dame to try to flip somebody out of another class, including some people they had looked at earlier. Um, Jackson Arnold comes to mind. Um, But you think about, you know, Notre Dame, that's kind of been their MO under Brian Kelly with Brandon Wimbush and Ian Book and Brendan Clark. So that's, I think, the most likely scenario if they miss out on Dante Moore. I don't know that they have, you know, regret would have a regret of not taking Christopher Vezina. I know they liked him a lot, I think the window of them pushing hard for him harder than Clemson came and went very quickly. You know, it looked like Christopher and Dante were on a similar timeline and then Dante hit the tapped the brakes a lot and right. Christopher didn't. So I'm not sure that there was really that opportunity unless Notre Dame made up its mind maybe a month or two earlier that Christopher was the preferred of those two quarterbacks
0: yeah I, I've, I've stated this before whether it was on the podcast or on our message board that I I'm not totally convinced that Christopher Vizino would have chosen Notre Dame over Clemson because Clemson was still going to push for him even if Notre Dame got a commitment from him before that were to happen. you know I, I just I think he's assuming too much that he was Notre Dame locked now maybe Notre Dame would have felt confident in its ability to get him in the class but that doesn't necessarily guarantee anything. Um as for the other alternatives, I, I, I don't I don't think it's fair to like sort of describe anyone as realistic alternative or not being a realistic alternative right now because Notre Dame hasn't made a public effort to pursue anyone else. Um there very well could be quarterbacks that Notre Dame would consider. Um and that those quarterbacks would reconsider Notre Dame or consider Notre Dame for the first time. Um if it came to that. We don't really know how that would play out yet. So Avery Johnson hasn't committed somewhere and there is no real clear destination for him. I don't know that anyone knows for sure where he will end up. Um, And I think uh, if he sort of continues to wait it out, there could be even more options for him once a few more quarterbacks make decisions and the schools left without a quarterback start turning to him. So Oregon seemingly hasn't anticipated that being a potential possibility by offering him this past weekend um, when its attention had been on Jaden Rashada and, and Dante Moore who visited this past weekend. So I think Notre Dame has certainly chosen one way to play it, but that doesn't mean like if they don't get Dante Moore, that's the end of the world. There still will be opportunities to, to pursue quarterbacks. um, And we'll see how that plays out. We, I mean, the, 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 the purpose of doing it this way and making Dante feel like, Hey, you are our one and only guy. You can't just like you can't like make the backup plans obvious because then you can't tell them, hey, you're our one and only guy. Because then, then it's like, well, what do you mean? You're go- you're talking to this kid every day or whatever. Uh, so I-, I think this is what they've chosen, and we'll see how it plays out. And uh, um, obviously, Dante Moore would be the ideal. Uh, Dante Moore in Notre Dame's class is the ideal resolution to this. Um, there's no guarantee that will happen, but I still think it seems like the most likely possibility at this point. All right. Uh, speaking of that, ND football fan Irish on the insider lounge asked if Dante Moore picks Notre Dame, what that would be the biggest recruiting
2: win since blank. It took my mind a lot of different places, um, you know, when you think of just purely, you know, a ranking and a quarterback, you think of Jimmy Clausen. and, you know, Gunnar Keel was a five star quarterback. He wasn't a top 10 quarterback. I think he was 20 on rivals. Um, but Claussen wasn't a missing piece. I mean, he was um, an important piece for Charlie Weiss. And then he got a five-star quarterback and Dane Chris in the very next class. Um, and he got all kinds of quarterbacks while he was there. So I think more in terms of a missing piece, that's where I'm going to go with this. And I'm going to go with Manti Tao. Um, I think that, you know, Charlie had the offensive firepower to win and get to the national championship game. What he didn't have was front seven elite players. Ironically, Manti was in his last class. He he also got Darius Fleming in that class. Uh, another important recruit kind of um, game changer was Stefan Tuitt. I think Notre Dame doesn't get to the national championship game in 2012 without Stephon it But Manti was the star of that team. Heisman runner-up won every possible award that you can win that's not attached to an offensive position. Um, so Manti Teo is going to be my answer.
0: Yeah. I think when I, when I, in terms of how I define Big recruiting wins. It's 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 a combination of things, and it's not just rankings. all that plays a role, it, it has to do with need, and it also has to do with who else wanted the guy and who else like did you pull that recruit away from. Um, and the first person that might came to my mind, um, which will be met with a groan, was CJ was CJ Williams in the last class because that was a huge recruiting win, although it was only a temporary recruiting win. Uh, he was sort of the perfect combination of talent, positional need. And from a school that Notre Dame can't close on with recruits and against USC, who always gets recruits for modern day um, and really wanted CJ Williams. Now they didn't <laughs> actually cross the finish line with that, but that was, that was uh, that, like, he, he, he wasn't a five-star recruit, but I thought that was sort of. The, it was close. The, the, the sort of kind of discussion that we're having, right? There's other cases like you could say Brendan Vernon, Ohio state really wanted a kid from Ohio and you go into Ohio and win that recruitment that those are. Those are big-time recruiting wins. Um, I can't give it to the five-star signings from Indiana. Like, certainly, Jalen Smith was huge. Um, Gunnar Keel, who you mentioned, Blake Fisher. But I, I just think Notre Dame should win those. Um, so that that sort of disqualifies them, at least in my opinion. But the answer I went with, with was Dalen Hayes in the 2016 class. Um, he's a five-star recruit, an edge player. who was previously committed to USC, a recruitment that went pretty late into the cycle. Um, that was a pretty massive recruiting win for Notre Dame. Now, now maybe you would say, well, Daylon Hayes' career didn't necessarily pan out to maybe mirror that. I think he was definitely an important player in Notre Dame's program. It dealt with some injury issues at times um, that sort of limited his impact. But And did in high school, too. And did in high school as well. But that didn't stop, to stop schools from, re- from pursuing him. So I, I think that that was like the most meaningful and biggest recruiting win that Notre Dame has had um, that it, that would compare in my mind to what Dante Moore would be. Now I think Dante Moore has the potential to be even way more impactful than, than Dalen Hayes was, um, just because of the position that he plays. But that recruitment, everything that went into that, I think was was pretty big. And and just sort of my perspective of of valuing recruiting wins, that 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 all matters to me. All right, that's it for today's long episode of the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with a friend. Uh, We'll keep you posted on when we'll be back with another episode. Maybe this long one will keep you guys satiated for an extra week. Um, We haven't necessarily decided that yet, but we'll get back to you on that and keep you posted um, so just keep following us on on Twitter or on the Insider Lounge and we'll let you know when the next one's coming. Until then, stick with insidendsports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs.